Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gill. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying. In this week's episode, I talked to Beth about the current disability benefits situation in the UK. Over the last few years, there have been cuts and measures introduced to reduce the amount of government spending on disability assistance and the NHS. We talked about the cuts to disability programs, the recent surprise resignation of the mastermind behind many of these cuts, and the NHS approach to pain management, or more accurately, the lack thereof. Most of my listeners are Americans, for whom the kind of social supports available in the UK, even as they're cut more and more, are unthinkable. In the US, it's quite difficult to get any sort of social support like disability payments, and the assistance leaves the majority of those on it in poverty. Disability assistance rarely makes it into the national political discourse, except for when politicians scapegoat those they believe are taking advantage of the system. Due to the economic turmoil of the last decade or so, sadly, this attitude is also growing in the UK and other countries with far more robust social safety nets than the almost non-existent one we have here in the US. The different approaches to the idea of a welfare state largely comes down to different attitudes about the role of government in society, taxation, and how those funds should be spent. The seeds of the welfare state in the UK were planted in the late 19th century and have been revised and reformed repeatedly over the years with what is considered the modern welfare state introduced after the Second World War. It was during this time that the National Health Service, or NHS, was established with several other programs to alleviate the issues of poverty, homelessness, hunger, and disability. Over the years, as Beth points out in the interview, almost as soon as many programs were introduced, they were modified or dismantled by those in government wanting to reduce costs. I would really love to do more episodes with international guests. Here in the U.S., we get so little information about other healthcare systems, and they're often either demonized or idealized when the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. So if you're in another country and want to talk about your healthcare system and experience in it, or you're from one place and living in another and want to talk about how your healthcare in either place compares, I'd love to hear from you. Write to me about it at insicknesspod at gmail.com or get at me on social media at insicknesspod. Tell me where you're from, what your experience has been, and if you'd like to do the show. Because talking about the American healthcare system all the time is just really, really depressing. So I've already talked to Beth in England for this episode and Ariane in Vancouver, Canada in episode nine. I'd love to hear from other provinces in Canada, other parts of the UK, and literally anywhere else in the world. I know I have lots of international listeners, so I'd really love to hear from more of you. Check out our other episodes about chronic pain and pain management, like episode 11 with Dr. Jill, a pain psychologist and chronic pain patient herself, and episode 22 with Jen, who talked about needing narcotic pain medications at a time when they're public enemy number one here in the U.S. I actually just redesigned the website a bit, and now there's a search field, and you can even browse by category from the homepage. Check it out at insicknesspod.com and find resources and more from us there. As always, find links to more information about some of the stuff we talk about in today's episode in the show notes. And if you can, please take a few moments to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. A quick content warning, the topic of suicide does come up a few times in this episode, so if you find that upsetting or triggering, you may want to skip this one. Now, to understand more about what's going on right now in the UK with disability benefits, I started out by asking Beth about the political parties behind these changes and reforms. 
your system is approximately a two-party system you have the tories and the labor party is that correct yeah yeah i mean tories also the conservative party like the conservative party is their like actual name but lots of us call them the tories oh, um, okay yeah yeah just just in case anyone thinks oh but i've heard of this other party yeah um and we have some other small parties there's the lib dems but i think like they've only got six mps at the moment they did have more last um sort of parliament which our last general election was last May um, and so before then it was the Tories and Lib Dems in a coalition mm-hmm. for 2010 to 2015 but then in 2015 it became a Tory majority. And that's yeah. when things really started to kind of go down the hill yeah. for disabled well, people, right? I mean, it's kind of, I feel like ever since all of these like nice positive things about the UK society were introduced sort of the minute that happened everyone was just like okay now let's just cut it all because like (laughs) yeah it's like the minute all of these benefits and stuff were introduced like um although there was quite a lot of the stuff that's been going on Labour definitely set the foundations for it which is I mean because they're meant to be left wing they're very very central the last time they were in power so Mm -hmm. They definitely, like, they, I mean, like, even, you know, they started some of the NHS privatisation and making disability benefits harder. I mean, the Tories have been far worse, but yeah, it's like there's been this kind of set up for years kind of thing. So you said, like, as soon as they were introduced, people started to try dismantling them which as an American I'm very familiar with Uh, (laughs) (laughs) when did these benefits and stuff kind of go into effect when were those introduced I think um basically because everything um has been like they've changed the names of everything right oh it's hard I think it's kind of oh mainly sort of around the 90s it seems like a lot of them at least the last um sort of like variation of them was introduced in like the 90s um yeah and then of course they've been changed again with um well mainly with the last government the Tory Lib Dem coalition yeah okay it's hard because they're always trying to like change it and redefine what like welfare is and what poverty is and what disability is so Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah (laughs) according to my research and this might be totally wrong because I didn't spend too much time looking at those. Oh, no, no, don't but worry. But yeah. you have kind of two different disability benefits programs, the employment and support allowance, and then yep. the personal independence payment, which very recently was called something else. Is that accurate? Yes. Um, okay. Personal independence payment was up until, I think, 2013 was when mm-hmm. it changed, and that was called disability living allowance. Um, and basically the change was... The, the difference between them was that personal independence payment or PIP is it's a cut compared to what dis- disabled living allowance was so like to receive it for disabled living allowance one of the conditions was you know um, you can walk up to 50 metres without with severe pain etc that kind of thing but with PIP it's been cut down to 20 so okay. it's already the plan was already to get um I think it's half a million claimants they're hoping will either have their entitlement cut or cut completely um, as they're transferring over. Um, I've always been on PIP because of when I applied, but um, mainly everyone is still in the process of transferring over from disabled living allowance to um, PIP. That's still kind of happening because, yeah, it's like it's taken a long time. Right. And so the the ESA, the Employment and Support Allowance, that's based on your means and just like how much assets you have. And then the the PIP is based, it's a point system based on the severity of disability. Yeah. Basically, um, Employment and Support Allowance is for people who can't work, dependent on whether they're put in the lower group which is called work related activity group or the higher group which is called support group for both they're not able to work basically if your class is able to work you can't get it um but yeah it does rely on your household income so say like if your partner's earning over a certain amount or doing like however many hours at work um and also how how much money you have um 
whereas pip there's there's not any limit on that um i think it's about a fifth of all pip and disability living allowance claimants um are in work so it's not related to if you're working or not um Mm -hmm. and it yeah i mean you can be doing a really high up executive job earning like hundreds of thousands millions and you could still get it because it's just saying you know i struggle with these activities i've scored this many points so this amount of money per week helps me overcome them kind of thing so you can access stuff a bit easier kind of thing okay can you talk a bit about the fit to work tests that they've implemented and kind of the fallout and the the consequences that that has had yeah the fit to work tests they're called work capability assessments um and they were introduced by labor i think it was 2009 ish um so yeah the last labor government um when they were changing it over to employment and support allowance or at least starting to because it used to be called incapacity benefit um what a charming name yeah i know (laughs) i know i mean i and i still because i'm i'm on employment and support allowance but i still get letters being like oh you don't have to pay this because you're on an incapacity benefit and i'm just like i'm not oh my god they don't use that name anymore because it's (laughs) terrible (laughs) just yeah i mean yeah um so basically you have to prove um that you either have that you're either basically expected to find it very difficult to find a job without a lot of support um and that would get you into the lower group which is the work related activity group or if you're expected like me to never be able to get a job you go into the support group where i think it's about a tenner or more per week at the moment although they are introducing another cut to that um for the work related activity group yeah so you have to I had to go in for an assessment with a doctor and I had to prove, you know, I can't pick stuff up. Like, so you can't, like, work a factory job. I can't sit in an office chair because, like, my joints start dislocating because of the EDS and um, that, yeah, and that I don't have the energy to, like, concentrate on stuff. So, yeah, mm-hmm. um, but, of course, it it is really hard to get get especially if you've got rarer conditions because you're just reliant on the assessor having heard of it and listening to you properly which is obviously uh yeah not (laughs) sometimes it doesn't happen (laughs) yeah so yeah um yeah and of course I know a lot of people who should probably be put in the support group but get put in the work related activity group because say they have something like chronic fatigue syndrome and the government just hates that because it's a diagnosis they don't quite understand and they feel it costs them a lot of money so yeah (laughs) now i read that there's some evidence that these fit to work tests are leaving people without any support and they are in some cases dying or committing suicide as a result yeah um i think yeah it was um i think it the article came out and it was about november 2015 but it showed Mm -hmm. in like the past the four years prior to that that um sort of within weeks of being class fit to work about 2500 people had died um because of the condition they were trying to claim employment as a support allowance for so i mean obviously they weren't fit to work if it kills them um shockingly i mean and as well with um mental health stuff because i mean obviously it is slightly more skewed to physical conditions so it is definitely harder to get and then harder to get someone to understand if you can't work because of mental health issues Mm -hmm. um and so yeah because people would be left without any and all income um they and they were already in a bad place they would commit suicide um yeah so there's there's been a lot of people who've um been wrongly assessed and it's just you know killed their spirit uh which is is sad yeah it is yeah so the actually the un committee on 
the rights of persons with disabilities is looking into this. Yeah, they are. Yeah, we're the first country which has had this, um, actually. Um, and I mean, at the moment, I know when it was first announced, the government were just like trying to sweep it under the rug and they didn't really want to talk about it. And they, I know when um, sort of. Uh, tribunals or stuff into why people have died after being classed fit to work and that the results of that have then gone to the DWP and say well look you know you classing them as fit to work is what killed them um, the DWP being the Department of Work and Pensions who handle all the benefits um, and they've just denied all responsibility um, there's been very little I can't think of any government minister who has you know agreed with these findings when it is pretty obvious that that is what has hurt people yeah that's so sad yeah yes i mean i don't know what the outcome of um that is gonna do um we also had a couple of days ago the house of lords which is like our upper house of parliament they did a report saying the government is failing disabled people and um, quite a lot of it was on access but obviously um you know because like i think i do think benefits and stuff were mentioned um but yeah so there's definitely some um i mean and i'm i'm glad that these people are looking into it but it's just a shame the government are kind of sticking their head under the sand well, that's what governments are for, right? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it's something they've caused, you know. Right. They can't be responsible for that. <laughs> right. So who's this Ian Duncan Smith character and what what's his deal? <laughs> he was the um, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. So he was in our cabinet. Um, he's a, he was a government minister. And so he is the one, he was the one in charge of the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions. So he's the one who's made a lot of decisions on benefits and all of that. And he's always been very, um, you know, pro thinking that if you cut people's benefits, they get back to work and that's better for them. And that, um, yeah, if people have less money, their illness will somehow be cured. I mean, yeah, he was just, like, what I was just saying about governments sticking their head in the sand, I mean, he is just an absolute pro at that. Like, <laughs> you know, there'd be disability rights groups protesting by his office and stuff, and he just, he cannot accept it. It goes on at sort of mainstream news programmes, they talk about it, no, he's helping people, you know, he's just completely convinced that what he's done is helping people um when actually it's been almost six years of making people's lives a lot worse um yeah which is always funny because when uh labor were in power and he was in the opposition because he was the head of the con he was the leader of the conservative party at one point but he was rubbish at that so they booted <laughs> him out um and um but he was always very he'd really critique Labour's, the way Labour treated disabled people um, and that, you know, they weren't getting the help they needed and that, you know, it was impacting their lives and that they deserved more rights. Um, but then when he was put in that role, he just decided that, no, people can work because it's, it's always about work. It's always about can you get back to work, you know. You're not a functioning member of society unless you mm -hmm. are working. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just the the oh. like assumed position in the United States. Like that is yeah, yeah. No, I can imagine. Yeah, you know. it's yeah. It it seems to be everywhere. And like you know, of course, there's quite a lot of people who will never be able to work, and that's fine. Right. You know, yeah. they shouldn't be made to feel bad because of it. But yeah, he he'd sort of say that Labour had made people dependent on the welfare state and yeah, like... Yeah, we hear that a lot over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I... Yeah, you seem to see it in, like, news reports for sort of every country, don't mm -hmm. you? Like, yeah. But no, he he was just a real nasty piece of work. And then, like, last week, he suddenly up and resigned, saying that yeah. this has all gone way too far, which is obviously bullshit, but... Well, yeah, yeah, I mean... um. 
yeah, it was really surprising because, of course, um, he'd just brought in the ESA cut for the work-related activity group, so that second group, the ones who could find work if there was the right support, you know, in an ideal society kind of thing. Um, and that cut was to cut them, I think it was £30 a week. So, yeah, cut £30 a week and then they'd suddenly be able to find jobs because then that would take the amount of money they were getting debt down to the same rate as job seekers allowance which is meant to be for people who um just aren't able to work are looking for work can work kind of thing mm-hmm. um and so he'd brought that in that was fine so you obviously believe what he was doing but um we had George Osborne the chancellor of the exchequer had just done his new budget um and basically these personal independence payment cuts um that were part of that budget because they were i think they were planning on saving i think it was 4.4 billion over the next five years so quite a substantial amount um again you know it would take money away from well over half a million people um and because i mean in his letter ian duncan smith said that he didn't like the way the pit cuts were clearly placed next to giving a tax break to middle class people that was suspiciously going to cost the same amount as the cuts to disabled people and that I mean because he's always you can tell he just wants to he's always wanted to cut benefits he doesn't think they should exist but he does want to sort of spin the idea that he's doing it to help people mm-hmm. um, and so I think when it was placed against tax cuts to the middle class and you could see oh they're doing that to help well-off people um i mean that's what he said in his letter there's probably a couple of different things i mean firstly he's never gone on with george osborne who would technically kind of have been his boss in the cabinet definitely a more senior officer sort of kind of thing um yeah because i they've always clashed um george osborne is very educated and ian duncan smith isn't and so it was kind of like two although they're both posh it was so it was like two (laughs) posh backgrounds uh clashing because yeah um and then as well i think because obviously as i said i think it's about a fifth of all the people who claim pit work so you can't frame it as you're trying to help people get back to work when actually no quite a lot of people on that benefit do work and it probably is the only way they're able to work because they can Mm -hmm. get an adapted car or a PA that kind of thing um so it just showed that it just wasn't you know there to help people it was just ideological um I mean, of course, there's also the EU referendum coming up where the UK is going to decide whether we're going to stay or leave the EU. Ah, yes, the Brexit. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. And he is very anti the EU. Um, he always has been, never been a fan of it, um, probably because it gives quite a lot of rights to disabled people. <laughs> um, and um, whereas David Cameron, our Prime Minister, and George Osborne, the chancellor are very pro eu they i mean they're definitely campaigning to stay in it um i don't think they think it's perfect but you know so i th- and i think most of the cabinet want to stay in the eu and i think yeah i think maybe he was getting a bit upset because he couldn't campaign fully for that because they were saying you know the cabinet has to kind of be united in one belief about it kind of thing um there's also um basically employment and support allowance is changing again soon even though it only came in i think 2011 (laughs) um basically that and um job seekers allowance which is for people who are looking for work and i think stuff like housing benefit which is like for your rent and stuff they're all being combined into one system called universal credit um yeah like a bad idea (laughs) oh god i mean well i mean they're saying that people 
will get the same amount um but the problem has been is that i mean this has been in the works for at least four years now and it's been a colossal failure like they invested hundreds of millions in, in into an it system which now doesn't work <laughs> and they're not using of course yeah i used to work in it so that is not at <laughs> yeah. all a surprise to me just spend yeah, millions no. and millions and millions of dollars <laughs> and then by the time everything is in place we have to change it all out again because it's not working yeah exactly exactly yeah. and um yeah i think as well because he was trying to do it on because he was trying to bring it in really cheaply because mm-hmm. changing a system across like that isn't cheap so it's been a just a colossal failure and there was a court case two weeks ago i think i think it was the high court um and basically ian duncan smith lost um his court case to try and keep the failures of universal credit out of public view so he was like trying to make sure we didn't know actually how much he had wasted <laughs> um so i think probably if the yeah i think if the eu stuff wasn't happening i think he would have stayed on until that had all come out and then of course you know when stuff like that happens ministers always resign right they want to spend more time with their family or something yeah exactly yeah exactly all that rubbish comes out then but i think he just thought he'd jump the gun and because if he's leaving and saying no this budget is bad it's undermining George Osborne and David Cameron and the whole staying in the EU camp um even though he then went on to vote for the budget so obviously he doesn't think it's bad because otherwise he could have very easily voted against it um but yeah so it's I mean like no one knows the real reason but they're kind of like what we're all thinking it's probably a whole combination of lots of lots of stuff um unfortunately not simple but it's definitely not for the reason he said because he loves making disabled people's lives worse like um he must otherwise he wouldn't have been able to sleep for the past six years so yeah (laughs) yeah I mean, this whole thing must be very scary because it sounds like things are constantly changing and those changes are pretty much for the worse. Like nothing seems to be, you know, trending in a better direction. So how has this affected you and your family and the people that you know? Yeah, I mean, it it does cause a lot of stress for me. I just recently had to do my reapplication for an for employment support allowance because you know although despite being placed in the support group so even the government say I'm probably never going to be able to work of course they have to reassess me every few years because I might have miraculously gotten better in some sort of miracle and I won't have reported it Um, yeah they do that in the US too (laughs) because I prefer to be on less money than I'd earn doing um, a full-time minimum wage job I'd prefer to you know have that <laughs> that life well, sure, I don't know. you just get to spend all your time luxuriating at home <laughs> yes watching Netflix in bed and feeling terrible like yeah um yeah so I mean and I had to just do redo it's like this 50 page form mm. and it really in detail like every little thing um so I had to redo that and so yeah that's very stressful and those Um, are entirely paper forms like you can't do it online at all no unfortunately not what I do to make sure I keep a copy of the forms and also because I can't really write anymore because it really hurts my arms right that was was why I was asking (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah no you get this enormous envelope through the post and it's just a bundle of papers so what I do is I type up all the answers and then cut them out and stick them in the boxes oh Um, wow because then I can actually well I can keep a copy of my answers which is good for when you reapply so you know Mm -hmm. what you said last time um also because they tend to uh destroy all your records um after a certain period of time so if you ever need to refer back to what you did say they're not going to be able to give you that information you have to keep it for yourself um so yeah lots of writing for that and so I probably will have to do another face-to-face assessment for that sometime soon um hopefully a home one because now I use a wheelchair and therefore need it to be wheelchair accessible but I think it's a really small percentage of the assessment offices are actually wheelchair accessible oh that's that is just great (laughs) 
which is just amazing or like they oh. have yeah they have lifts and they're mysteriously broken because they're of always course. trying to catch people out um yeah and i'll have to reapply for my personal independence payment next year in about a year's time but yeah it's just the uncertainty of it because although i mean like i'm in the support group for esa i'm getting the max amount of personal independence payment you can get um but it's just scary because it feels like at any point that could be taken away um and the stress of it is just yeah it's really difficult um i mean as well because i live i live alone now i was until about a year ago i was living with my dad um but i mean that was in a house and i was really struggling with the stairs it wasn't accessible there was no way we could make it wheelchair accessible so i'd applied to go in for council housing which is social housing um because the issue of being on benefits in the uk is that no private landlord will rent to you so i just couldn't which wasn't helpful um yeah. so where i'm living in council housing and although it's unlikely that I mean, because as well, that's something the Conservatives don't like. So, like, you know, they might encourage my council to just sell my flat. Um, and then I moved somewhere else that isn't as helpful for me. Um, you know, it's further away from my family. It's not as accessible, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much, like, how much time would you would you get, like, between when you found out that was happening and when you had to move? I don't know because I know now I have a um, sort of permanent rental contract with them that they would have to find me somewhere better so I mean it is really unlikely that legally they could find any way to make me homeless Um, Mm -hmm. I'd pretty much have to be running some sort of major drugs operation here (laughs) um, which is unlikely well Um, you know that's a great way to make some money well yeah especially with the way the NHS treats pain here but um yeah yeah. um yeah so I just I find it really worrying and I feel like it it's definitely made my depression and anxiety worse um because and like when the budget came out and this bad news came out about cuts it's just really upsetting and I struggle more like I definitely find a couple of days after any benefit news is announced I'm really depressed because I'm just worried for like me and people I know um I mean as well there's been things like um the DWP have been caught at um benefit tribunals taking Facebook photos off of the claimant's Facebook page presenting them without the date or information so even if it was taken before you were in your current state of disability they say well look at this photo of her standing this shows that she doesn't need these benefits and she's lying Mm. so it's stuff like that like locking down my Facebook profile untagging myself from photos even though they were really old because like I don't want (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. that yeah god forbid any disabled person Uh, ever has some fun yeah i know i know and this is all stuff from when i was like back at university and my health was much better so yeah and so yeah it's just really worrying and i mean i'm especially worried for my sister who um has well yeah she's technically been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome although we're suspecting more and more that it actually is elis danlos just because that's what I have and she right it's genetic so she scores enough points on the um Baton scale yeah Baton scale um and the Brighton criteria on her own let alone if she has a um direct relative with it um mm-hmm. and so yeah of course and she's been treated very differently by the whole system because chronic fatigue is obviously thought of as this thing that like people make up Mm-hmm. and that it's fake people just aren't trying hard enough you know she's gone into assessments and doctors have said oh you know when well, we see a lot of people here who say they have that and it you know and she's in the work related activity group so obviously I'm worried about if she got reassessed or if they brought out the cut for that to everyone that that would affect her um yeah it yeah so it's like affected 
the whole family and yeah obviously I know a lot of people who are in the same situation it feels like you don't get any break from it like there's always something around the corner and they're going to try and trip you up and try and take the money you're living off of you know yeah it's really worrying (laughs) yeah that sounds like it sorry you have to go through that yeah no thank you garbage yeah Yeah. um you said that the nhs doesn't treat pain great uh, yes (laughs) which you know a lot of health systems don't so i'm curious about like what the situation is there in the uk yeah i mean obviously i mean generally we've got a lot of problems at the moment with the nhs because again it's something that the conservatives they're not a fan of they think if the private market took it over we'd get better value for money even though the u.s has shown that, that don't doesn't do that work. no i know i know <laughs> believe me I want to it turn is a up, disaster i want to turn up to parliament and yell at them believe me because i just it's like that would be my worst nightmare yeah um so i mean obviously services like that are already for sort of marginalized people are already very underfunded like I mean mental health care at the, at the moment in the UK is non-existent that kind of thing yeah. I think as well um, because so much of the NHS has been privatised it's not actually considered a national health service anymore because it it's kind of they've privatised so much of it that it's been that tipping point mm-hmm. unfortunately I mean the problem with pain treatment here is because obviously where it's run by the central NHS, you get like NHS England, NHS Wales, NHS Scotland, NHS Northern Ireland. Um, so for like the four countries in the UK. Um, and yeah, but they, especially with pain relief, they do not think well of uh, patients getting any form of useful pain relief. Um, I had a my one and only pain clinic appointment it was last Monday and it was yeah it was not a good experience at all it was just terrible I um because at the moment my pain relief is I'm taking pregabalin and geloxetine and that's about it so for the neuropathic pain but I mean Mm -hmm. It feels like my body's constantly on fire, especially my legs. You know, it's why I now use a wheelchair. It, you know, it's just, it keeps me up at night. It affects the fatigue. It's such a terrible, terrible symptom that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that I think the NHS philosophy on using opiate medications is, you know, who cares if people are suicidal because of their pain? as long as they're not taking opiates because that would be worse because like I don't want to be on opiates I really don't they make me feel really unwell but I mean what else am I meant to do because I'm kind of nearing the maximum doses of what I am on and it's not working and obviously there's no medical marijuana here so that's not an option um, but yeah, no, I I went in to see this pain specialist and she just flat out said no to opiates ever being considered, even just considered a treatment option, um, even though I said the pain was making me suicidal. So yeah, it was a really rough appointment and both my mum and I, well, I definitely left crying. I think she was near to crying. Um, yeah, and she just said, oh you know have you tried pacing yourself more and all of that kind of she was talking about physiotherapy and like I see some really specialized physios but like they're not really there for pain relief because that's not really how EDS works right yeah I mean the woman who'd had an appointment before us left crying as well so I kind Mm. of get the feeling this is all they do um pain doctors in the UK is just turn people away because you have to find someone who's willing to um go against the guidelines and then if they get called out on it be able to defend themselves from that and not get in trouble you know so I think a lot of them just don't bother but yeah that was just awful um (laughs) well that is awful yeah so yeah no I know a lot of people who have no real pain management whatsoever probably (sighs) never will 
Yeah. Because of course opiates are the bad guys and they're evil and even though the addiction rate like in people who use them all the time is barely higher than the general population and you know all all of that kind of thing I think there's definitely um, they don't understand like the difference between dependence and addiction oh definitely definitely not god yeah no exactly Um, yeah and so you know when it comes to opiates they just do not get that and yeah I mean I'm going to go back to my GP and see if she thinks there's anyone else who could give me a second opinion but I don't know where else to turn because I'm not I'm not currently under any rheumatologists because the specialist one near me in EDS her department has been cut so much that she can only see new referrals to diagnose people so I can't see her Um, so I don't really know where else to turn to so yeah I mean I know obviously the US isn't ideal for it and obviously there's the CDC uh, bringing up all sorts of rubbish yeah I mean it's complicated but the the new CDC guidelines are just guidelines so technically you know they're not they're not law doctors aren't required to follow them they are yeah. merely a recommendation uh, yeah but you know as it, i wouldn't be surprised if we started to see insurance companies not covering those drugs yeah. because of the cdc guidelines i wouldn't be surprised if we see an increase in suicides because yeah. people are getting cut off very suddenly from medication that their doctor had been previously prescribing to them, there's no obligation for them to like wean you off of them. So they could just be like, Nope, sorry, I'm not, I am no longer writing these prescriptions. And it's not necessarily the doctor's fault. You know, there's a lot of systemic pressure on them. They're being monitored a lot more. Um, They're, there's a certain limit to the number of prescriptions that they can write. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a mess. Yeah, because I think, obviously, the NHS guidelines, again, they're just guidelines, but then the NHS is the doctor's employers. Right. So, although they're just guidelines, they can get in trouble for breaking them a lot more easily. So, because I I know my GP in the past when I've needed stronger pain relief and she's had to then put a note through to her manager because otherwise her manager will notice she's prescribing these things to a 23-year-old and they will call her up and suggest she's doing some really dodgy stuff, you know, which she's not. She's just being a good doctor. And unfortunately, I mean, at least here in the US, like some doctors we're really doing some dodgy stuff, you know, and like kind of ruined it for everybody else. Because, I mean, there definitely were way too many prescriptions written for that stuff. Like they were prescribing it to people who did not need it. And as a result, the people who do need it or who need it periodically are not, are now going to have a problem or are already having a problem accessing those drugs yeah yeah just it seems to be a real conundrum but i mean like i and i said the thing about that you know countries which have tighter restrictions on opiate medications for chronic pain patients have higher suicide rates than countries that have slightly looser restrictions you know because in yeah in like the chronic pain world people tend to if they're not and like obviously opiates aren't perfect but if Mm -hmm. that's the only thing available then you're probably going to save some lives by prescribing them but yeah it's it's a real it's so (laughs) difficult but yeah i mean we can access um the cannabis oil we can get we can buy that legally and so i do use that but it's very expensive obviously Mm -hmm. because where it's not medicinal um and of course mine the cannabis for mine has to be grown in um the netherlands and processed there and they have to take out the thc there and then import it so of course there's a lot of costs if they could just grow in this country be a lot cheaper (laughs) but yeah of course each batch of oil has to you know travel like many many miles and be handled by a lot of people and lots of external companies so yeah it's not ideal but yeah I just feel like you know if you don't want to 
give people opiate prescriptions then there has you have to, to be give something them else an alternative yeah. absolutely well, yeah. yeah no exactly you can't just leave people without treatment because yeah, that's just that's, not yeah. fair I don't I don't know it's all a mess now if you like uh, not that I'm uh, encouraging this and and <laughs> you don't have to answer this question if you don't feel comfortable but let's say you did want to procure some cannabis would you be able to even though there's not any legal access would you be able to I mean uh, find some I live well I mean firstly I live in this tiny town which is about 10,000 people and I mean most mm. of them are retired um so i mean i personally don't live in an ideal place for it i mean you definitely can um as with anywhere where you know drugs aren't legalized um there's a large black market for them i mean it's just that getting medicinal strains or at least strange strains with a slightly higher cbd versus thc would be very difficult because of course Mm -hmm. that medicinal market isn't there and so growers and dealers aren't you know aren't there to fulfill that side of the market because it's just yeah because it's not legal um i mean yeah if i could get some and i knew the quality was good or something then i would look into it definitely because you know it just get the pain gets to such a ridiculous point at some you know and it's not like I do much anyway so if I can at least be able to do a bit more yeah (laughs) and you know I mean the thing that's really wild to me is that you know when you're taking those huge doses of like pregabalin and stuff like you can be more impaired from that than you would be from like smoking oh, yeah. a bowl. But some, for some reason, somehow, because of this like mythology that has been built around cannabis, like <laughs> it's the worst thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I know they've um, put restrictions on stuff like pregabalin here recently because people were using yeah. it to get high. And I mean, I've never had... I've never had a high experience from it. I mean, if anything, it sometimes makes me feel quite ill. So I mean, yeah. people must be quite desperate to get high. Um, but yeah, so like even that kind of stuff, it's becoming more and more restricted. And you know, it it just uh, it just I cannot fathom how you can doctors can feel that no, not prescribing something that like opiates, where yeah, it's not ideal, but it's something how they think that is doing more harm than you know just leaving you to feel suicidal and be in tons of pain and yeah it or and to look on like the black market i'm sure a lot of people have been driven to illegal drugs trying to find pain relief Mm -hmm. or drinking too much you know i know so many people that drink way too much because they're self-medicating yeah well yeah exactly self-medicating is a big thing and obviously like alcohol can be really dangerous Mm -hmm. um but even even tylenol or, or i guess uh you guys call it paracetamol yes yeah that can be Oh, yeah. Extremely dangerous if you take too much of it. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, all you have to do is take sort of an extra few tablets of that, and I mean, like, your liver will fail, and it's yeah, you could really die. nasty. Yeah, yeah, no, mm. it, I mean, that's why, I mean, I know we have restrictions on you can only buy, like, one box of it at a time for reasons like that. Um, but, yeah, it just, I mean, because we had, this was the last Labour government, I can't remember what year it was but it was professor david nutt i think and he was the um government's drugs advisor and basically he undertook some research and proved that alcohol causes more deaths and more harm than cannabis and which so is fired him. like you don't yeah. need to do a study yeah, no, <laughs> to find that out like that is yeah. so obvious i mean and he was doing i think he was doing a Cochrane review so it's like the review of tons of other studies right. and all the metadata so it's it's scientifically it's a very good way of finding out if across a whole big population you know this is worse than something else that kind of thing but yeah and they well I mean they didn't exactly fire him but they made him resign um, yeah because they just couldn't and they tried to bury that report they just couldn't bear the fact that like you know something they all do on a nightly basis probably right. is 
worse than what they're prosecuting people for and sending to prison and fining and <sighs> stuff yeah so what a I nightmare just, yeah it really is it really is i wish all of these things were just easier for everyone because uh, yeah yeah <laughs> well on that very bright note yes <laughs> Uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about? Um, yeah, no, just the how, I don't know, I feel like everything's being eroded away, and I know it's happening in other countries too, but I feel like the UK's had such a good system for, like, mm. welfare and the NHS and, like, looking after its citizens, and, like, I mean, we've never been any close to ideal. There's always been problems, but, you know there's just this real big push at the moment to just get rid of all this stuff and like yeah and it's just it's really difficult and upsetting to like be living through um because sort of you know I rely on these systems a lot of other people rely on these systems and yeah. yeah yeah well I wish you luck Yes, thank you. <laughs> I wish I wish I could offer more, but I wish you luck. Yeah, for... no, I, yeah, I, luck is is what you need, unfortunately, with them. Yeah, <laughs> trying to deal with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for listening to In Sickness and In Health. Find resources and more from us at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. If you're an international listener that would be interested in talking about your experience on the show, please contact me. I'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other. Mm